It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 149, King Jehoshaphat's Repentance and Elijah's Fire from Heaven. After the failure at Ramoth-Gilead, Ahab dies and his kingdom goes to shambles quickly. His son, who didn't possess his gifts, takes over the kingship. Jezebel probably goes into some form of half-drawn, half-crazy depression. Ben-Hadad, this time, stretches himself and expands his territory, not a complete invasion of Israel, but a slow, gradual territorial expansion into northern Israel. In addition, Moab revolts against Israel. Jehoshaphat, he just runs with his decimated and embarrassed and ashamed army back to Judah. Honestly, the dude's just glad to be alive. He wasn't a soldier. He's Mr. Innocent Lover of God, who ventured into the wrong space and paid for it with people's lives. Back in Jerusalem, he focuses on what he is good at, revival, and picking back up the pieces and reassembling his legacy and reputation. Second Chronicles 19 When Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned safely to his palace in Jerusalem, Jehu the seer, the son of Hananiah, went out to meet him and said to the king, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is on you. There is, however, some good in you, for you have rid the land of the Asherah poles and have set your heart on seeking God. All right, so this is a prophetic rebuke. It's well done, no crazy lion deaths and such, just a simple, direct, prophetic rebuke. Jehoshaphat's response was godly repentance that leads to holy action. And when this guy sets his heart to God, he does something amazing that leads to revival. It was those years of wanderlust and kingly envy which hurt him and probably led to a premature death and the ruining of his physical legacy. But spiritually, Jehoshaphat's story is going to last through the ages, and he will later get a place even in eschatology for his use of worship and the judgments of God. All right, we've got to understand this all occurs in a short amount of time. From here, Jehoshaphat's going to live another eight more years that are filled with great testimonies and some failures. In these immediate years, we have revival and a failed naval expedition. And in future episodes, we have a failed invasion into Moab, as well as an invasion into Judah's territory, whose resolution goes down in the history books. First, like a traveling evangelist, he turns his nation to the direction of God. Second Chronicles 19.4 Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, and turn them back to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. He appointed judges in the land in each of the fortified cities of Judah. He told them, carefully consider what you do, because you are not judging for mere mortals, but for the Lord, who is with you wherever you have a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. In Jerusalem also, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites, priests, and heads of Israelite families, to administer the law of the Lord and to settle disputes. And they lived in Jerusalem, and he gave them these orders, You must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord. 
and every case that comes before you from your people who live in the cities, whether bloodshed or other concerns of the law, commands, decrees, or regulations, you are to warn them not to sin against the Lord. Otherwise, his wrath will come on you and your people. Do this, and you will not sin. And Moriah, the chief priest, will be over you in any matter concerning the Lord. And Zebediah, son of Ishmael, the leader of the tribe of Judah, will be over you in any matter concerning the king. And the Levites will serve as officials before you. Act with courage. And may the Lord be with all those who do well. So revival is breaking out again in Judah. And great things are happening because from the top down, the king preaches and administers justice. I mean, the guy is really into justice. One could camp here in the untrodden chronicles of Jehoshaphat and find incredible nuggets of wisdom on revival. He leads his entire nation in worship and justice and revival. Thousands, if not millions, are in heaven because of this man's spirit. It won't be long before the eastern side of the Jordan explodes in revolt again. In the meantime, Jehoshaphat is seeing with his own eyes the result of godly repentance and comparing it to months before when he nearly died in battle. All right, so let's travel north to discuss northern Israel at this point. Meanwhile, in the north, upon the death of Ahab, his son Azziah becomes king. For the rest of this episode, we'll cover his two years as king. It appears he tries to rally his soldiers to fight off the Arameans, and it was to no avail. The Moabites are rising up against him, and he never really seems to gain much power. He's constantly losing power. He doesn't have his father's charisma and an ability to ward off multiple threats. We can guess from something that happens, he spends most of his time in the palace and enjoying the pleasures of the palace. So much so, he falls through the scaffolding on the top floor, and he has a serious life-threatening injury. Don't know what he was doing or how it happened, but the Bible states he was in an upper room and he fell from it. Symbolically, upper rooms are places where God overthrows dark spiritual powers and principalities, only confirming the very soon end to the line of Omri and the fulfillment of the word regarding the descendants of Ahab. Prior to this falling from the upper room, Isaiah does exert some energy to be mentioned further. He works with Jehoshaphat in dreams of the days of Solomon and the naval fleets and the gold from Ophir. He works with Jehoshaphat and most likely co-funds the building of naval fleets at Ezion Geber. Since shipbuilding takes so long, I'd like to suggest that his father Ahab started this venture and Isaiah carried it forward with it. Upon completion of the fleet, instead of another moment where Ophir gold imports arriving from India flood the markets. We have a disaster. Eliezer, son of Dodavahu, prophesied to Jehoshaphat, because you have made an alliance with Isaiah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. It appears Jehoshaphat was repentant, but he wouldn't break his words with Isaiah. He did go so far as to tell Isaiah his men could not board the vessels or crew them, but this was not enough. An alliance with evil men, unless it is covered by a special grace of God, only pulls down everyone involved. Before they could set sail, a huge storm came and destroyed the fleet. Millions in gold and years of construction gone in an evening storm. Thus the consequence of ungodly partnerships. 
the Lord was not going to allow Isaiah, the heathen king, to receive the gold of Ophar into his hands. Thus Jehoshaphat, who was in the midst of revival, still brought himself down by making an alliance with Isaiah. His incessant weakness was partnering with evil men, a mercy to the very end, always thinking the best of people and not being suspicious of them, and partnering to his own demise with the wicked. All right, back to Isaiah. He's on his deathbed from the fall from the upper room. Have you ever wondered about this strange event in the New Testament? John nine fifty two, And he sent messengers on ahead. This is Jesus. He went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. The reason why these guys, who seem so powerless at times, are capable all of a sudden of such supernatural action as calling fire down from heaven is geography, anointing, and the power of the testimony. 2 Kings 1. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Isaiah had fallen through the lattice of the upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers, saying to them, Go ahead and consult Beelzebub the god of Ekron, to see if I'll recover from this injury. All right, so Beelzebub is the god of Ekron at this time. This interprets to the Lord of the Flies, according to Josephus and others. In the New Testament, the Pharisees in Matthew twelve twenty four refer to the devil as the head of all the demons, referencing Beelzebub. So we've got an indirect reference here that Isaiah worships the devil, So we could go into the history of the use of the word Beelzebub, but I'm not in the study your enemy mood this week. I think Ahab was enough for a while for me. Jezebel's still around the corner, and there's her daughter we have to deal with. So I'm going to take a break from making the bad people and covering them and learning their lessons. What we will have to do in this episode is look at the peak behind the veil and speak to the fire from heaven that's coming soon. The devil's referenced, and now the angel of the Lord comes to Elijah. The angel of the Lord, a.k.a. Jesus, pre-incarnate, is going to show in this episode. Because the Lord himself has spoken to the end of the line of Omri, we will see much supernatural intervention to see all of this occur. And also we've got to understand the devil, whose name is indirectly referenced here, doesn't want his servants to perish. He's playing his cards here because once Jezebel and her family's dead, a torrent of evils to be washed away from northern Israel. Principalities of darkness must be rebuilt, and mountaintops are not easy to claim overnight. Second Kings 1.3 But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on, and you will certainly die. So Elijah went. And when the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? They said, A man came to us, they replied. And he said, Go back to the king who sent to tell him. This is what the Lord says. 
Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're sending messengers to consult Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked them, What kind of man was this who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, He had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. The king said, That is Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of fifty men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was standing on top of the hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, Come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed the captain and his fifty men. Elijah, who called down fire for the sacrifice at Carmel, now calls down fire from heaven and consumes the fifty men. It's like some sorcery in some fantasy video game. Seriously, this stuff is just incredible. Fire from heaven consuming armed men. Makes me reconsider all I know about military history. A few Elijahs could destroy an entire army. This is why Elijah was able to roam free in the countryside for all these years. Sometimes maybe he'd be invisible, but other times if they approached him, all he'd have to do is just threaten fire and everyone would run. I mean, Ahab and Jezebel knew better than to approach the roaming prophet. Better to leave him alone. Who knows what other events occurred between Carmel and this scene. A man capable of bringing down fire from heaven on command is unbelievable. 2 Kings 1.11 At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain with his fifty men. The captain said to, to him, Man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven, consume you and your fifty men. Then fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. Boom! Another fifty-man brigade of soldiers was scorched. Like the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, fire comes at the command of Elijah. Unbelievable. This just gets me like fire by the command from heaven. The prophet of fire, Elijah, just operates in just unbelievable power. What would that look like today? I mean, honestly, something to chew on if, if this really happened. He commanded fire to fall. He didn't make a sacrifice and pray for much at all. He says, no, he just commanded fire. If I am a man of God, may fire fall. And chew on this thought that no one ever does this in the Bible. I mean, there's sacrifices and there's fire from heaven. But he literally calls down fire to scorch soldiers. Now, Jesus doesn't command fire. But then again, at the end of the age, at Armageddon, his word will be like a sword destroying armies and demonic hordes. So why not have one guy, at least one guy in the Old Testament, command fire and destroy brigades of soldiers? It will be Jesus in Armageddon that will, with a word out of his mouth, annihilate the entirety of the ages and eons of demonic military buildup. With a word, like a sword coming forth out of his mouth, the Lord will destroy all of his enemies. 2 Kings 1.13 So the king sent a third captain with his fifty men. His third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he pleaded, please have respect for my life and the lives of these fifty men, your servants. 
See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. Now the angel of the Lord, a.k.a. Jesus, has mercy on this commander and tells Elijah to go. Elijah, learned of God's mercy at Mount Horeb, has been willing to grant mercy ever since. And now he sees a genuine heart begging for his life, and with the Lord's agreement, he allows him to live and goes to the king. 2 Kings 1.16 He told the king, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on, and you will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. So we have an obvious lesson. Don't consult the devil, whose assignment is to kill, steal, destroy, for it leads to death. Like Ahab's deception, he loved deception and was deceived. Isaiah wasn't out for mercy. He wanted to probably take down a prophet prior to his death, or possibly atone for himself to Beelzebub. Isaiah is going to die, and his brother is going to become king, apparently because he has no son. Omri, Ahab's father, started a dynasty that will actually make it to the third generation, but not the fourth. Like an hourglass running down, the line of Omri, including Jezebel and her daughter, the princess of Judah, and all their children, is coming to an end. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I don't think it sounds like a good idea to cover Isaiah's life lessons. We've done enough of the same with Ahab. Jehoshaphat's revival was awesome, but it was his second revival and there'll be more great things to come with him. We have more Jehoshaphat coming up, so let's focus on the crazy fire from heaven story and it's tied to the New Testament. After all, it resurfaces in the New Testament, which gives it greater weight, and it's just awesome. Every time fire falls from heaven, it demands attention. So we're going to keep going, covering the fire from heaven in this episode, and how it relates to you and me, and discuss discernment, acts of faith, inspiration, and the symbolism of this scene. Jesus was walking through Samaria over 800 years later with his disciples, and there was people jeering some of the disciples. It was James and John who most likely received their nickname from Jesus at this point due to this scene. What a nickname, by the way. Jesus most likely gave them the nickname of Sons of Thunder due to this action in this scene. What on earth were they thinking that they wanted to call down fire from heaven on the jeering persecutors? Most likely they were walking the same ground that Elijah was on when he called down fire from heaven. Upon the same or similar hill they walked, and the disciples either knew their history, the testimony, or sense something that occurred there back in time. The reason why I think this is possible is actually common sense. Consider with me. Have you ever been to Jerusalem? How about Golgotha? What did you feel there? Did, it feel, did you feel something special there? How about Jerusalem or the Via della Rosa? What did you feel? Jesus said even the stones would cry out. In history, we cannot deny what happened, and there is an indelible mark that believers leave on the land, and God himself leaves on the land. Think about your own life. How about your past, your redeemed memories? 
you have good memories of your youth. And if you visited that house, that place, that street, you could possibly visit those same memories and our emotions again. The only time in world history that a man called down fire from heaven, not for a sacrifice, but to defend oneself demonstrating God's power over armed might, was here in Samaria. For this reason alone, there should be no doubt there was some form of heavenly power that left a mark on the land, on the ground, in the land, in the territory, or somehow that still retained a form of God's power or his authority. How about when Elisha, when his bones were touched after his death, that a dead man was raised from the dead? Now, this is where some could get kind of weird, but that's not the point. The point is God's power and his history and his testimonies come with the measure of faith and testimony that is available to those who believe. There is a tangible presence of heaven that never leaves when heaven's fire comes down to earth. That tangible presence that remains is the testimony of Jesus and heaven conquering the powers of darkness on this land. It's a tangible power of heaven that came and delivered humans from bondage. The disciples sensed or felt or knew their history enough that they thought they could do the same. They're inspired and have a faith because of Elijah's action that they declare, shall we call down fire from heaven? Well, unknowingly or knowingly, they understood what was available to them. But they were not in a state of armed conflict, but persecution. Jesus came to be a lamb, not the lion, at least at this first coming. This they didn't understand yet. So we must applaud those sons of thunder for discernment of God's power present, but question their understanding of the Spirit in operation. The funny thing, we all have this to one level or another. Consider this. Have you ever entered a room and felt something different that you didn't feel before you entered the room? Or a restaurant, let's say a Thai restaurant, which has tons of little Hindu figurines and statues. Did it make you feel strange? How about... When you are with a certain group of people, you feel sad around a depressed person or happy around a bounding family or full of joy around those loving you, around you. You walked into the atmosphere or spirit that they carry. The disciples walked into a testimony and power that was available to those who believe. Though their response was in the wrong spirit, their discernment was correct. What atmosphere do you carry? And what atmosphere, what spirit do you recognize? What spiritual inheritance is available to you? What testimony, what history is available in your family line, your school, your city? There's so much more available to those who believe. Who in your family line, school, and city has experienced a burning of God's presence in their life? Do you recognize it? Do you feel it? And you know it is there. We went to a friend's graduation party. I saw my friend, who we had gone to church with for years, but when I stepped foot into his house, there was something different. I sensed there was someone I needed to meet. But not just this, I feel like I was all of a sudden in a worship service at a church. It was bizarre, and I realized that there was a man or woman of God in the house. And it didn't take me long to realize it was my friend's mom. 
and her friend that was with her, who were wild worshipers of God and lovers of God. They were actually visiting from Nairobi, Kenya. There was a fire in their hearts for God that I had as well, and that I recognized. What about you? Do you recognize the fire? James and John did. It's available to you. It's available to me. It's the fire of God's Holy Spirit that burns in our hearts for the things of God. We must recognize what is available, what testimonies exist, what is available to those who believe. No, we shouldn't call down fire from heaven to burn people. But if John Wesley preached and the wind and power of God was so great, people fell out of trees, why can't it happen again? Why can't there exist a time where the entire nation was swept by revival like in the past? Why can't stadiums be filled with new converts instead of the old cornfields back in the day? Why can't revival occur again and great missionary movements occur again like the days of the Moravians? Why can't many, many Christians be in government and make godly laws and change our country? Recognize the fire in your heart and when it connects with the Lord's anointing and purposes and power and comes in a connection with a story, a connection, a, a power, an anointing, you have a multiplier to achieve a greater purpose. When the fire in your heart connects with the fire from heaven, great power is available to those who believe. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.